Jonah chapter number 3. I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's 10 verses. The Bible says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out. Here's his message. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So over the last 30 or 40 years in church cultures, what we've seen, and I think we probably can agree in this if we've been observing during that time, we've seen a clear moving away from confrontational preaching. And it's not every pulpit, it's not every church, but I would say the broader picture beginning with what we've often called the seeker-friendly movement, has intentionally moved away from some of the harder truths of Scripture. Uh, Let me just ask you, when was the last time, and listen, I'm the preacher here for the most part, when was the last time you heard a 45-minute sermon on judgment in hell? It's been a long time. Not just here, but all over the land. Now, some people may never be led by the Lord to preach in that kind of vein, Other people are led by the Lord to do it if they're preaching the whole counsel of God, but for whatever reason, they don't want to either offend people or hazard their ministry or send people running off to the nicer church down the street. There's a lot of reasons why pulpits are no longer filled with preachers that are courageous enough that when the Lord specifies a passage dealing with some of the harsher truths of the kingdom, there's a reason why some of them just say no to God. Jonah was the exact opposite. Jonah, as we follow his story, had already been commissioned one time to go to Nineveh. And I'll tell you more about Nineveh in a minute. And God wanted to bring salvation to Nineveh, but Jonah hated the Ninevites. And he did not want to go because, as he will testify later, he knew God was merciful. He knew God was gracious. And he knew that if he went and preached uh, the repentance message to Nineveh, Jonah knew they would repent. And so what did Jonah do? Jonah went in the complete opposite direction, uh, had a layover inside of the belly of a fish, was spat out upon the beach, and here we find him getting his second chance to obey God. 
And so on the backside of a second chance, we're going to follow Jonah as he obeys the Lord. But I really want the focus of this message to be through Nineveh into the country in which you live. Friends, I'm not going to sugarcoat it tonight. The overall characterization of the American 21st century culture is biblically defined as evil. We live in a wicked culture, an anti-Christ culture, an unwise culture, a rebellious culture, a decadent culture, a hedonistic culture, a me-centered culture, a rebellious culture, and it could all be summed up with that biblical word evil. And it is evil because it is treason against the holiest and highest authority, the Creator who is the Lord over all creation. But mankind, we've just gotten very clever at establishing our own ways. We've redefined sin and called it different things. And ultimately, God looks at it and he laughs and he says, you're still the same. Humanity has not changed. And so tonight, I just think we're going to take this opportunity. And instead of me continuing to describe what I'm going to do, let me just do it. And let's get into the word this evening. Let's start back up in verses 1 through 4. And let's just let the text carry us along here. And we see this unexpected message from an unequaled authority. I want you to remember the authority of God, not only in the book of Jonah, but right now over your life and my life. Because we're dealing with rebellion versus authority here. And God is the authority, but he brings this unexpected message. First of all, to Jonah, God gave Jonah a second chance at a tough assignment. The Bible says, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I would tell you. Now, there's very little difference in between the second call of Jonah and the original call that he had. God was saying, Jonah, I have a desire for the Ninevites, and you are my prophet in Israel, and I'm going to send you. Now, Jonah was well aware that he had heard this commission before, and I've already described his initial response to it. It was one of saying, no, I'm not going to do the will of the Lord. Matter of fact, I'm going to go on a cruise. I'm going to hope God forgets that he called me. And of course, God just followed the boat along, and we all know how that turned out. Jonah was swallowed by the fish. He had three days in the fish, and in the belly of the whale, he would testify later that he said to God, I will pay my vows. And I talked about that last time we were together, that sometimes when God puts us in a little circumstantial time out, it it brings us to this place of saying, whatever you need me to do, I am going to obey you. And, And that's what Jonah did. And so now the call comes the second time. There's this one little detail, though, that wasn't mentioned the first time. God's saying, Jonah, when I send you, I want you to speak the message that I give you. I want you to cry out against Nineveh. So Jonah knows immediately he's got a tough assignment. He's going into the city that I'm going to tell you about, and his message is not, this is your best day now. His message is not one that's going to make everybody happy. His message is not going to encourage them on how to live a better life and have, the, you know, have their skin clear up and their hair grow back and their teeth shine whiter. That's not the message that Jonah's bringing. It's not health, wealth, and prosperity. It is going to be a message of repent. It is going to be, as we would term it in our day, it's going to be turn or burn. That's about as crass as it could be said, but that is the essence of the message that he brings. So Jonah at this spot, focus on him just a moment more. He had learned the value of obedience. 
unlike the first time, verse number three tells us the second time, so Jonah arose and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Say this word with me, obedience. Obedience. Jonah had learned the value of obedience. Now, I'm not going to point a finger at Jonah because he wasn't the first, nor was he the last hard-headed believer who dug in his or her heels when God made his will very plain. But I will say this, uh, nobody's ever succeeded when they take that posture with the Lord. Would anybody like to stand up and give testimony tonight about the time you rebelled against the will of the Father and how he blessed you for it? (laughs) it? It just doesn't work that way. But some of us are hardheads. Some of us try to circumvent some of the tougher assignments that God gives us, but not this time for Jonah. And so what he learned in his obedience is that our reluctance or our avoidance of the will of God does not change the will of God. And so, so often in the Christian life, we find ourselves potentially placed on pause for weeks, months, years, or decades. Because we have neglected or avoided the clear will of God for our lives. And God is still waiting for us to respond to the last thing he told us. Jonah had learned it the hard way. And now the Bible is very clear. Jonah didn't protest. Jonah didn't run in the opposite direction. Jonah got up and he went to Nineveh probably somewhere between 600 and 900 miles. Depending on where he was after his little um, journey out at the sea. But he made that long traveling road to get to Nineveh. Now, let's get into the city because that's really where I want us to spend most of our time tonight. When this unexpected message came from the unequaled authority, when God sent this message to Nineveh, I want you to understand, Nineveh was a powerful um, culture. They were marauders. They were a very violent people, but they were also in control. They would have had, by way of um, looting and pillaging and dominating in a military sense, they would have had prosperity. It would have come through violence. It would have come through war. They would have had notoriety. They would have had lots of um, material possessions. And by the way, they were decadent in their religion. They would worship religious idols and false gods that would enable them to satisfy their sexual pleasures in any way imaginable. But also, that that same worship would allow them to act in barbaric and violent ways, and they would never bat an eye. They would never feel like they had violated their conscience because their conscience had been seared. They were, although there were exceptions, I'm sure, within the city, they were a demonized people. They were in the lap of the wicked one. And that was the entire culture. But here's what's amazing. Let me just read the verse in verse number 3 and into verse number 4. This is how the scripture describes it in the book of Jonah. Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days journey in breadth. And that not only describes the size of the city, but also the um, magnitude of what was going on in Nineveh. Jonah began to go in the city going a day's journey. And here's his sermon. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, there's a lot of questions concerning Jonah's ministry that the Scripture doesn't answer. In the Hebrew, his sermon there, translated here into the English, in the Hebrew, it's five words. He, he preached or recorded a five-word sermon. I'm going to give you my opinion. You can throw it away if you disagree with it, because it's just as good as your opinion. My guess is that Jonah said more. 
but it's not recorded. And so what we have here at the very least is a summary of what Jonah said. Jonah walked through the city, and remember, his heart wasn't bleeding with compassion for these people. He didn't even want to be there. Uh, let, me, let me help you with this. Um, especially in, since um, 2001, American hearts typically don't feel very warm towards the Middle Eastern Islamic community, the, the fundamentalists and the terrorists. Most of us probably felt somewhat vindicated and justified when we learned of Osama bin Laden's death. And that's because we, quite frankly, and I'm just being honest, I might as well offend everybody tonight, we don't have the heart of Jesus towards our enemies. And so when, when we hear about radical Islam and terrorists and, and them being destroyed or overturned or exposed or obliterated through American military, most of us don't put on sackcloth and ashes and weep. That's the way Jonah would have felt about the Ninevites. He's not going there hoping for the revival that would actually come. He's going there doing his duty. God had his obedience, but God did not have his enthusiasm. So I picture it like this. And if I can paraphrase, Jonah's walking through the city. It took him three days to walk in and out, up and down all of the streets. And he's saying, my God is going to destroy you. You're doomed. You better repent or you're dead. Your blood's not on my hands because that's what he told me to tell you. I told you I'm going to the next neighborhood. And so it's not an eloquent message. It's not a tender message. It's not a message that's going to have a, a boatload of... Um, uh, Hebrew uh, doctrine attached to it or theology attached to it. It is literally your classic flame-throwing prophet. And Jonah fit the bill completely. My guess is that there was probably the added element. And again, you can throw this away if you disagree with me. In 1891, there was a man who was on a harpoon ship, a fishing ship, and I'm, I briefly mentioned it last week, but I actually did a little research this week. His first name was James, and I'm, I'm losing his last name, but you can Google it if you want to, and you can just say, 1891, guy in the whale's belly, and the story's going to come up. He, they were harpooning. They were chasing two whales. One of the harpoons was thrown by this man named James. It stuck in the well, and as the, the fish began to move... It, the rope got taut, it pulled him overboard, and he entered into the whale's mouth. For an hour and a half, they wrestled with getting that whale to finally succumb, and the whale, the, the, the guys on the ship did not know that their shipmate had been swallowed, but when they brought it up, they began to do whatever whalers do to get all, everything out of the whale that they needed. The next morning, he was in there a total of 36 hours, the next morning they finally got to the stomach contents as they saw the lining aren't you glad you came tonight isn't this blessing you as you as they saw the lining they saw something moving and sure enough it was their their fishing mate whose name was James and they cut open the lining and for three days he lay in the captain's quarters losing his mind but physically alive Physically alive, he had been in what they said was about a 105-degree whale's belly, and his skin was permanently bleached. It burned his hair off. It bleached his skin. Now, if Jonah's experience was anything like that, picture that evangelist walking into your town. 
you're hearing an incredible message, but you're seeing the, the walking dead coming through your streets. And he's pre think about that, though. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of being tongue-in-cheek, but I, I think it's reasonable to believe that, uh, you know, three days in a, in a whale's belly would probably alter your appearance. And there's Jonah coming down through the streets, preaching this turn-or-burn message to a bunch of pagan Gentiles. Um, it's just a great time to remember uh, that God will go to incredible extremes uh, to reach a people that he has put his mark on. It wasn't God's desire to judge and exterminate the Ninevites, but nor was he willing to allow them to allow their continual barbaric sins to be played out before his holy eyes. So he sent a messenger and he said, I want you to tell them that I'm going to destroy them unless they repent. That's not a popular message. Some of you have preached messages. Some of you have taught. Some of you have had one-on-one -on -one witnessing encounters where you're dealing with somebody that is steeped in their rebellion Stiff-necked, hard-headed, however you want to say it. And you've had to say some very difficult things. And you know how, how sometimes agonizing it can be to the soul to say the hard stuff. Here, here's my fear, if I can make a little bit of a commentary on where we are in Christendom. And I'll just keep it to the United States of America. I believe that generational fears of offending people have resulted in the new norm being that we actually cover the truth in order to get people to like us. And because of that, there is not a clear understanding. I believe we have a full generation of people now. I've been a Christian since 1994, and so that's 23, 23 and a half years, somewhere around there. And so we, in, in the time I've been saved, I have watched christendom preachers teachers leaders back intentionally off a confrontational message of your your sin will carry you to eternal judgment they backed off of that completely and they've replaced it with certain fragments of of self-help cloaked in gospel language that leaves people with the understanding this is what a lot of people would would, would extract from a modern day presentation of who God is, who Jesus is, and who the gospel is. They would say, well, just feel better in your heart towards God. Admit that you, like everybody else, have done wrong. And if you'll just do that, God will overlook everything you've ever done. And there's very little confrontation that is in sync with what the scriptures teach. The scriptures actually teach that people don't come into condemnation, but they are condemned already. Jesus said that. Jesus said, I, I didn't come to condemn the world. The world's already condemned. He came to deliver the condemned. He said, Jeff, who are the condemned? Everyone, until they come to the one who relieves that condemnation. And so we have, listen Christians, I, I'm, I'm talking to you. This is true where you work. This is true in your family. This is true at school. That every single person is migrating towards their eternal destination. And the only thing that interrupts that destination from being eternal condemnation in a place that the scripture refers to as the lake of fire, the only thing that removes that is the blood of the Lamb of God. 
The sacrifice that Jesus made. Getting baptized doesn't set you free. Joining the church doesn't set you free. Cleaning up your act doesn't set you free. It is only the blood of Jesus Christ that removes the condemnation off of you and brings you into immediate and eternal full justification and acceptance with God. And so when we cloud the message with all of our happy talk, now listen, I want to be nice. I, I don't want to be offensive, but, but remember, the gospel is offensive. The gospel offends the flesh. And so if our goal is to never be offensive, we will find ourselves somewhere along the spectrum being disloyal to the gospel. And so Jonah went through, and he didn't have any problem with shucking the corn. I mean, he just went in there like a flamethrower. He put a flame to the fabric of the pride of the Ninevites. But I don't think he believed what God would do. And this is what's amazing to me. And this is one of the reasons why I preach this tonight. So go down to the verses 5 through 9. We see an unprecedented response from the most unlikely places. In verse number 5, we find that the message of Jonah met the masses. The Bible says the people of Nineveh believed Jonah's God, believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Now, I spend a minimum of about three hours, minimum of three hours on any sermon I ever preach. I don't care if I'm doing children's church downstairs which never really happens, but if I was doing children's church downstairs or if I'm preaching up here, a minimum of three hours. If in a good week, it's about eight or nine hours of just intense study. Jonah, he didn't study. He didn't prepare. He just walked through with the, you know, the napalm and just, he's just burning down truth on him and the whole city repents. Man, I can't even get four people to repent on a Sunday morning, man. The whole city repents and Jonah's just going through in half-hearted obedience. But this is what's so special about this. It just reminds me. You and I deliver the mail. God determines what happens when the person opens it. What we don't see here is the invisible grace of God. We have no idea how God had prepared their hearts ahead of time before Jonah ever entered the city. We don't know what he was doing with the very words that Jonah spoke. Listen, I know Pentecost had not happened yet in Jonah chapter number 3, but that doesn't mean the Holy Spirit was on vacation. The Holy Spirit took that, that message of Jonah and did soul revolutionary work on the hearts of the Ninevites. And the Ninevites were not a bunch of ballerinas. These were marauders. These were thugs. These were killers. These were some of the most violent and rapacious people that had been on the planet at that time. And yet the, the gospel, and I guess if we want to call it that, the message of God comes through and it melts their hard hearts like butter. You know what that teaches me? It teaches me that I don't have any right to ever give up on anybody. And man, I know some of you have been working with, with people that look like the last thing they'll ever do is repent before God and receive Jesus Christ as the Lord of their lives. But there was no human evidence that would have given Jonah any indication that the Ninevites would ever listen to what he said. But the Bible just makes it very plain. Jonah says, 40 days and the city's overthrown. And they said, we repent. And it was citywide. 
I mean, the entire place in a matter of three days begins to repent. I'll give you this. I do believe in the last of the last days that when the faithful believers, the remnant that are on the planet at that time, will be obedient and faithful to proclaim the gospel, and at that time it will be the gospel of the second coming when Christ comes to establish his kingdom on earth, there will be people during those tribulation years that will repent. They will repent before God and they will bow their hearts to the Son of God before his second coming. I don't think that you and I have ever been asked of God to figure out who will believe and who won't believe and then adjust our ministry accordingly. Some of the most impossible people, when they are converted, become some of the most glorious saints. I can think of Saul of Tarsus, who was the Osama bin Laden of his day against the church. And Jesus met him one afternoon on the Damascus Road, knocked him down in the dust. Who are you? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. What would you have me do, Lord? And Saul of Tarsus went from being the chief enemy of the church to, begin, to becoming, in his generation, the greatest propagator of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So why am I telling you all this? I just want to encourage some of you. Don't give up on that person you want to give up on. Don't let twisted theology tell you, well, they've, they've gone reprobate. They never can repent now. It's never going to happen. Listen, we're just not qualified to judge where a person stands in their process with the Lord, but we are qualified to take the message that Jesus saves and Jesus forgives and Jesus redeems and Jesus transforms and ultimately Jesus will sanctify and glorify. Jesus does all of that, and that's all he's told us to do. He's told us to be witnesses, to bear the witness of the truth of the gospel. So the message met the masses in verse number five, but even makes its way into the palace there in Nineveh. God's word brought the mighty low, verse number six. So the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. I want to stay here for just a moment. So it's one thing for the common everyday man or woman in the city to repent and believe the message. But the king is the most secured person in the city. He's got the most money. He's got the most power. It's harder for him, humanly speaking, to repent than anybody else in the city because he has way more to lean on. He's impervious to human assault. But when the word of the Lord makes its way through the streets and there's mourning and repenting and crying and weeping and sackcloth and ashes, eventually that gets into the palace where Proverbs, I believe, 21.1 comes into play that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord and like the river of water, he turns it wherever he wants. So the sovereign hand of God reaches down and turns the king's heart. And notice what it says. I love this wording. It says he got up off his throne. You can write this down, or you can file it in your brain, or you can forget about it, but I'm going to say it. The essence of repentance is you get off your throne. All of us who have repented, the moment before we repented, we were the king or the queen of our own lives. We were making our own decisions. We were doing our own thing. Uh, we may have been a little child. We may have been an adult, but the essence was is that we were ruling us. And repentance, salvation comes at the moment where you recognize, recognize, just like I had to, at 24 years old, I'm sitting on a throne I'm not qualified for. And repentance is you get up off of that throne, you invite the Son of God to sit on that throne of your life, 
and then you bow before that throne. And the king's actions in this moment are a vivid picture. And he takes off his royal robes and he puts on the mourning garments of sackcloth. And he gets off the throne and he sits in ashes. And all of that is just a picture of somebody who is contrite and humbled and is experiencing the fear of the Lord. And that had never happened in that city before. Um, Isaiah 66 verse 2. I think this will be up on our notes. It may be up on the screen. Here's what Isaiah wrote. God said it through the prophet. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. I love that verse from the Lord. If you ever want to rest in the gaze of God, just posture yourself like this, this verse describes. Humble, not proud in spirit, but contrite in spirit and you believe the word of God to be supreme to the extent that you tremble beneath it because it reveals the holiness of a gracious but thrice holy God. Um, I, I, most of the time, are y'all with me tonight? Is this a little too heavy? Because if not, you can leave, but I'm going I'm to finish it up. <laughs> most of the time when I'm in the presence of God in a corporate setting, it's my time to celebrate. Um, it's, it's very rare that I get so hit with the holiness of God in our services on Sunday that it brings me on my face. There's nothing wrong with that when that happens. But most of the time, that's happening to me in private. And so when I come to gather, my, my default approach is I want to celebrate with my brothers and sisters the glory, the grace, the mercy, and the love of God. And so most of the time when we gather together, it's a very celebrational um, time together but there are clear moments where the people of God gather together for what we often call a solemn assembly when there's no high fives there's not a lot of hugs as a matter of fact we're we're in that moment where we're recognizing that God is great and holy beyond our ability to measure and in those moments when we recognize the holiness of God even though we're saved even though that we're forgiven, even though that we're accepted in the beloved, but just because we're saved and forgiven and accepted, that never gives us the ability to forget about the holiness of the one who saved us. When we lose touch with the holiness of God, we'll lose a certain, I'll call it an edge in our Christian life. A constant awareness of the holiness of God. And I don't mind saying this. Christians, we need a reintroduction to the fear of God. Not because he's going to get us, but because, listen, when we walk in a reverence and an awe and an understanding of who he is, because he hasn't changed, we, we, we need to walk in that. And what that does is it puts a distinction on our life. I, I don't know about you. I, I want to be a friendly Christian. I want to be a happy Christian. I want to be a joyful Christian. I want to be a, a relational Christian, but I don't want to be a flippant Christian. I don't want to be casual in the presence of God. I want to be at rest and I want to be peaceful in his presence. But casualness with God is a cousin to irreverence before God. And so we need to have a healthy fear of God. I, I, I don't know how to impart that to somebody. I believe that's one of the reasons why the word of God needs to remain central in our life. Because if you will regularly stay in the word, God is constantly saying, this is who I am. This is who I am. Here am I. I'm right here. See me here. See me here. See me here. 
And what's happened is that we have cherry-picked the scriptures so much that we, we are all familiar with happy God and kind God and loving God and merciful God. But what's happening, and I blame guys like me, I blame preachers, that, that what's happened is because we have over-preached the gentleness of God and we've ignored the severity of God, that people don't really know who he is. And so that's why we're seeing very little distinction between professing Christians and modern-day Ninevites. And so go down into verses 7 and 8 with me. This is, this is important too. The response of the people was visible and measurable. The Bible says that the king issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. That means they made their pets fast. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. They just learned about God three days ago. And now the top man in the, in the, in the city is saying, bow down to Jonah's God. And then he says this, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. It's amazing that when you humble yourself in the presence of the Lord and you get off your throne, that all of a sudden you start getting some clarity on your sin. Nobody was talking about the violence in Nineveh. Nobody was talking about the evil in Nineveh. It wasn't until repentance has been engaged that the, the illuminating light of the Holy Spirit starts showing them who they are before a holy God. Even the king was able to say, man, we are a violent people. All of us are violent. Repent of your violence. Th this is important. I was having a, a discussion with my son about repentance. Actually, Amy and I were both talking to him about it. And talking about the difference between saying we are, have repented versus what the Bible would define as true repentance. And so words of repentance are step one, but if that's the only step that is taken, it is not repentance. The New Testament commands us to bring forth fruit worthy of repentance. That means, listen, I'm, you talk about an unpopular thing I'm about to say. This is unpopular. This means that your life had better speak to what your words have said. So when we declare, I belong to Jesus, let's just take for a moment some painless sewing up of our lips to where we can't say anything else. We cannot speak on our own behalf. All we can do is live. So your words cannot go any further, but what does your life say? Repentance, friends, is measurable. We are being transformed, so we're being sanctified. There is a progress. There's a spectrum that we begin on, and we migrate through sanctification, ultimately to glorification. But the Bible also says that we are new creations in Christ. Old things have passed away. And then Paul says, behold, which means, look at this, check it out. All things are becoming new. And so this is where we get into some discomfort. Because we're not supposed to question that in anybody's life. Because they said they belong to Jesus. And somebody told them, ask Jesus in your heart. They said, well, I did that. But you still live like hell. You still have the fragrance of sulfur on your life. You're still in bondage to your sins. Now, I want to be very careful here. You know I'm not a legalist. And there's a difference between struggling with a sin 
and bringing it to the Lord and keeping short accounts with God, there's a difference between that and somebody that is in bondage to their sin. 1 John chapter number 2. If we say that we know him but do not keep his commandments, we are a liar and the truth is not in us. And so if we're living in a constant practicing of sin, there's something that ought to be within us in love for people and say, hey, man, you said all the right stuff. But aren't you living in bondage? And if we are truly redeemed, shouldn't he be living through us? Um, the reason why I'm so passionate about that is because I was that guy. I was the kid that prayed the prayer when I was nine years old. I got baptized at Christian camp at 14. And two months after that Christian camp, I willfully embarked in an outright rebellion that lasted for the next decade. And all the while, I called myself a Christian. Why? Because I prayed the prayer and I got baptized. So the words out of my mouth and getting dunked in a pool at Christian camp carried more weight than all of the Word of God. And the Word of God would constantly, for the last two years of my lost years, when Scott Johnson was witnessing to me at work, he would say, yeah, I hear what you're saying, man, but hey, read that. Re read this part of the Bible. Now, what does the Bible say? And he'd take me to Galatians chapter 5 where it lists all the works of the flesh, and I was doing just about all of them. And then it says, and I tell you now that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And Scott, he would just say, now, what does that mean? And, and I'd get frustrated. I'd be like, man, I, I, I don't want to slam the Bible shut. And eventually, it took two years. And eventually, I said, well, maybe I'm not saved. He would tell me later that that was the breakthrough moment. When I let the Bible speak to how I was living, and that began to carry more weight than me holding on desperately to some empty prayer I prayed. You see, Nineveh repented. The king repented. And it was visible. Words of repentance are worthless apart from deeds of repentance. And we, we don't stop repenting after the moment we get saved. We're always repenting. We're always turning to the Lord with with. God-sensitive consciences. Brothers and sisters, I know a lot of people think a lot of different things about losing your salvation, and I'm not going to get into that tonight for sake of time, but let me tell you this. Don't just grieve over sin if you think it causes you to lose your salvation. Let me tell you what all of us ought to agree with. When we sin as Christians, we grieve the heart of the one that loves us the most. That's what we ought to be thinking about, not how much can I get away with and still eke my way into heaven. Do you know how hellish that thought is? Because that makes the whole work of Jesus, it makes it something we, we make merchandise of in order to fuel our passions. You see, the reason why we don't want to sin is not because, oh no, if I sin too much or if I do this thing, maybe I don't go to heaven. No, the reason why I don't want to sin is because I don't want to quench the Spirit, grieve the Spirit, break the heart of the Son of God, trample the blood of Jesus under my feet. I don't want to bring shame to His name. I want to bring glory to His name. And therefore, I don't want anything active in my life that is the very thing which caused Him to give His life that it might be paid for. And so it's not an issue of how much can I get away with. We see that so often. It's, it's an issue of, wow, 
I've got a relationship with God the Son who loves me and I love him. And I don't want to live in a way that grieves the one who set his affection on me. Listen, um, I'm going to be careful with this. So I'm married. My wife is, is my best friend. We weren't each other's best friends when we got married. Uh, we just, we loved each other, but we were the typical young idiots. We thought we knew what we were doing, and we didn't. But we entered into a covenant with each other. Yeah, y'all are supposed to laugh at that. Y'all need to unclench, okay? Just relax a little bit. But we entered into it, and, and it was a covenant. So we, we moved into that covenant. Um, I've, I've never cheated on my wife. Not because I think she'll leave me if I do. I've never cheated on my wife because I wouldn't want to hurt her. Because I love her. Because I couldn't imagine doing anything. It's not because it would cost me something if I did. It's because I can't fathom doing that to this woman. And so and when it comes to our relationship with Jesus, I don't want to behave so he doesn't leave me. I want to live in a way that brings pleasure to his heart and that I never grieve him. It's, it's very similar to that, that illustration I gave you about me and Amy. So why am I saying all of this? I'm, I'm saying it for many reasons, and not the least of which is this. Um, I don't know if Billy Graham got it right or not, but he said decades ago that his guess was that probably 60 to 70% of the people that attend church aren't believers, aren't saved. I don't know where you, you, you can pick a statistic and say anything, but I would say this. Um, it's been my experience that... Um, Many, a large percentage of people who know all the lingo, they can sing the songs, they can play the part, but when they're not in a place like this and they go out, they have no devotion to the Son of God. And so when I preach this kind of stuff, I'm not being mean-spirited, but I do want to say this. Friends, we are getting very close to the end of the age. And people that are playing games at the foot of the cross, they're like those Roman soldiers that were rolling the dice at the foot. They were so close to the Savior, but they were playing games. And I don't want, I don't want anybody that needs to think about these things to not have the opportunity to do it. So let me go to the very end. I love what verse number nine says, and I'm not going to spend much time here because I'm out of time, but the expect expectation of the people in their repentance was sobered and it was hesitant. Look what they say. They're saying they're doing all this, and here's the reason why. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Now, let me tell you what that tells me. Jonah probably didn't tell them, if you repent, God will turn and will not destroy you. They had to wonder. The beauty for you and I is, is that we don't. So anybody that's heard this message tonight that may be feeling condemned, may be saying, maybe I'm not saved, don't know, maybe I'm a fraud. Look, I went through all of that. I spent literally two and a half years struggling with whether or not I was a, um, a deceived church member without actually being a believer. But here's the beauty. We don't have to wonder like they did in verse number 9. They're wondering, I don't know if this is going to appease the, the wrath of God. We actually have it plainly spelled out in the gospel, in the New Testament, that if you will confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you from all 
unrighteousness. So the, the, the doubt has been removed. The question has been removed. God says, I promise you, I will do everything. I will take it away. I will relieve you of your guilt. I'll deliver you from shame. I'll deliver you from, from condemnation. I will pardon you. I will not put you on probation. I will pardon you, and you will be absolutely free. But you must get real with me in this moment about who you are and who I am. You must confess that you're a sinner before a holy God, and that, that, that holy God will become your father the moment you acknowledge who you are and trust me. So nobody has to leave here tonight saying, oh no, am I or am I not? Listen, let me just ask you, I'm not asking you to go back and try to dissect what you did in 1982 when you prayed that prayer. That's torment. I, I talked with somebody recently who was deeply struggling with his salvation. He's like, man, I, I, I felt it was real and then I wandered and I got off and I don't know if I was saved, I don't know if I wasn't saved. And I said, hey man, quit trying to figure out what happened seven or eight years ago let's just cut to the chase do you right now trust in jesus christ as the lord of your life and are you in this moment surrendered to him and he said yes and i said well based on the word of god you're saved it's torture the devil wants you to go back and obsess over your salvation experience. Was it real? Was it not real? Did I do it right? Did I pray it right? Was I fully repented? Was I half repented? That's the enemy. He, he wants to take you back to a, a moment in your history to try to figure out how valid it was. You don't have to do that. You can just say, I don't know what happened then, but I know right now that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And the Savior has said that if I will trust that he died for my sins and I'll believe that he rose on the third day and I call upon the name of the Lord, I will be saved. And so in the moment, you can say, don't, don't figure out yesteryear. Just ask yourself, am I trusting him right now? Do I trust in the Lord? They didn't have that luxury, so they were hesitant. You never have to be. Last, last verse. God releases an unforgettable mercy on an unsuspecting people. So the Bible says, when God saw what they did, don't miss that. It wasn't what they said. It was the visible, measurable response. God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Well, I don't have enough time, but you, you want to talk about some a theological quagmire here. Did God change his mind? Was God always prepared to doom them and he was just waiting to see or did he know listen go home and wrestle with that that's not my purpose right now Here, here's what i do know god honored their response to him god almighty they had no they had no leg to stand on they had nothing to bargain with but god looked at their broken humble heart saw the fear of the lord in them and when they repented and they did they they didn't have a you know, a syllabus on what it means to repent. They just were brokenhearted and had the fear of the Lord. Some people want to say, well, did they actually get justified? Did they actually get saved? We'll find out when we get to heaven. The one thing I know is that disaster was averted and the Ninevites um, persevered and actually prospered for another 150 years. So you want to say three or four generations lived in grace before Nineveh finally hardened their heart and experienced the full wrath of the Father later on in their history. 
but it made a difference for that generation. So as we leave here tonight, a couple of things. I don't know that the Lord is calling us to patrol the streets of our neighborhood, you know, with the little, what do they call that board, breadboard or whatever it is, you know, turn or burn. I, I don't think that we're supposed to be obnoxious with the gospel. But nor do I believe that we can afford to be vague with it. I don't want my kids, and I'm going to make a commitment on behalf of myself, Dustin Pennington, Billy Humphrey, and Gabe Palmer, who are going to serve as, as your four pastors when this merge takes place. I'm going to promise you something. Both you, your children, and your grandchildren are going to hear the truth, and they're going to be exposed to every facet of the counsel of God and we will help you. We will come alongside of your family and help you train up your children in the way that they, they ought to go. I can promise you that we're not always going to be popular. We're, we're not always going to be, oh, we are the you know, conveyor of warm fuzzies every week. That, that's, just, that's just not realistic. But we can't afford to live any longer as believers, not just in pulpits, but in our communities, in our schools, in our workplaces. I'll give you this, this counsel. You're not going to save everybody in Nineveh. But there's people in your life that God has you saddled up to regularly. And some of them are unbelievers. And I promise you, if you will pray for the wisdom, God knows exactly how to speak through you to win their heart. You're going to deliver the mail, and maybe that sounds a little abrasive. You're going to bring truth to their life. And he's going to show you what demeanor to use. Jude said it this way, that some you will have compassion, but others you will snatch out of the fire, hating the garment spotted by the flesh. So what does that tell us? It says some, it's going to be the, 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 the goodness of God that leads them to be repentance. But other people are like me and like Art back there. Me and Art, we were hard heads. And nobody was going to feather us into the kingdom. We needed, you know, an Abram's tank kind of approach. Some days you're going to be the feather and it's going to work. Other times God's going to stretch you and you're going to be the tank. But think of the joy. Think of the absolute everlasting joy of stepping into glory and seeing one, two, five, fifteen, thirty-five, a hundred people that are going to spend eternity with the Son of God in paradise because you refused to be vague. You refused to buy into the soupy approach to Christianity that is nothing more than a big kumbaya hug fest. Brothers and sisters, time short. Jesus is worthy. He is worthy. And when we bring him whether it be to a sweet little child or an intimidating Ninevite, when we are faithful to bring him, he does all of the heavy lifting. He will take care of business, and we'll have the privilege of the process. Let's stand to our feet tonight. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Just two very quick things. If you're here tonight and you're unsure of where you stand with the Lord, I'm going to make it so uncomplicated. To the best of your ability, get off the throne of your heart and acknowledge him as the supreme authority in your life and bow your heart to him. 
I'm not going to wrap that up with a lot of theology. It's an issue of your trust and your submission to God. He's worthy of your trust. And when you submit to him, you will never regret it. He's Lord of all.